Welcome to the Voices in Bioethics podcast. I'm Camille Castellane, and it's my great pleasure to welcome Megan Wanzo today. Megan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Camille. So Megan Wanzo is currently the clinical trial manager at the Bristol-Myers Squibb, and she's also the adjunct professor at the University of Health Sciences and Pharmacy for Ethics. Megan, we're very happy that you're here with us today, and it's clear from her work that patient-centered care and promoting quality and equitable health outcomes are really important to you. Would you please tell us more about why that's an issue that you're so passionate about? Absolutely, Camille. Thank you so much for asking me this question. I grew up in a rural area. So I grew up in Centralia, Illinois, which is about 60 miles east of St. Louis, Missouri. And Mm -hmm. in rural America, we have a lot of unique health issues. And the first one is we're an underserved population. We don't have a lot of medical access. So I knew going into this career in ethics that I wanted to create more access not only for people in rural communities, but also for people who look like me, so African-Americans, especially African-American women, which already have lower health outcomes than other populations. Oh, yeah. No, that's very, very important. And why specifically would you feel that African-American women are especially important group of people uh, when considering these issues? You mentioned that there are certain barriers as well to equitable health care specifically for this group. You know, Camille, there was a study in 2016 that found that 40% of first and second year medical students believe that Black people didn't feel as much pain as their white counterparts. And mm-hmm. this was especially true when it came to Black women. We saw that they were coming to emergency rooms across the United States, and they were not being treated for their pain. They were being sent home. They were being told that their pain was not real and that Mm -hmm. they could take over-the-counter medications to heal their perceived sickness, illness, pain. And these Black women were actually suffering from quite complex issues that should have been caught by medical professionals And some of them even ended up dying from the lack of care they received. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. No, that's horrific. And I think this is just one example of so many structural injustices as well that are present still and to this day. If we think of past transgressions as well, and we would have hoped that it was something of the past, but unfortunately, that is the reality that we've also seen during the COVID pandemic even. Absolutely. We have to remember that bias is a two-way street, especially when it comes to Black women in the American healthcare system. You know, Black women have bias from previous transgressions such as Henrietta Lacks and how her cells were used without consent. And now there's a major profit off of HeLa cells, as they're called. Mm But she did not consent. Her family did not consent. And now it's a major profit for industry. But where is the justice for her? Oh, yeah. And then we also have medical providers who hold their own internal biases from outside sources, from where they grew up, from media that places unfair stereotypes on Black women in particular. Yeah. 
No, I'm so glad that you also raised the issue of bias. And I really appreciated reading the book of Henrietta Lacks. And I could actually advise all our listeners also, if they haven't read it, to really read it. And I know the woman who wrote it as well, she really delved into the story and she went to go meet her family. And it was such an important story to tell. And I'm still surprised even today, sometimes people that I talk to in the bioethics field, they don't know who she is. And yeah, that kind of just always surprises me. But it also comes to show that these discussions need to be had more often as well. Are there any, in your experience, specific cases that raise some ethical issues pertaining to black women in healthcare? You know, I can think of one in particular that happened in St. Louis, Missouri, and it wasn't a case I was on, but it's a case that I often talk about with my students and people I know. And it's the story of Anna Brown. She was a resident of St. Louis, Missouri, and she had gone to several different area St. Louis hospitals complaining of intense intractable pain in her calves and legs. Anna Brown at this time was homeless, which should not have mattered, but clinicians kind of wrote her off as drug-seeking, as possibly seeking illegal sexual activity. And eventually, when she presented to the ER for the third time and doctors looked at her, Anna refused to leave. And she was screaming that she was in so much pain that she couldn't walk. And the doctors called the police on her and they said she was trespassing. Hmm. Police agreed with the doctor's assessment that she could be drug seeking. She could be into some illegal activity and they carried her off to jail. Anna was in such pain complaining she couldn't walk that police officers carried her by her arms and legs into her jail cell and left her on the floor. Even though there were beds there, they left Anna Brown, a Black woman, on the concrete floor of her jail cell. Mm -hmm. Anna was left there moaning, kind of weeping, and officers stood by and watched. Anna died shortly after she was brought to that jail cell, and an autopsy later revealed that she had blood clots in her leg that had gone to her lung. So in this case, it tells a powerful story of a Black woman who sought out care for pain she was having and didn't receive that care. And we ask ourselves as ethicists, she went to three different St. Louis area hospitals. She came in contact with police officers, people at the police station. What if one person would have believed Anna? What Mm -hmm. if one person would have said, let's run one more test? What if one person would have said, you know, I looked at her chart and she's been to the ER three different times in a short period and really they weren't prescribing her any medications. They could have ran a drug screen, but they didn't. And now Anna's dead. She was someone's mother. She was someone's daughter. She was someone's sister. She was someone's friend. Anna was a black woman who was somebody And because of these biases that we have in the American medical system, no one came to help Anna. And while right now, in that moment, it's too late for Anna, we can save other Black women from this terrible mistake of not believing them 
by believing them, by standing up for them, by saying, maybe we need to look at this a little longer. You know, so many of our hospitals, we admit patients for observation. Why are we not submitting Black women for observation? Again, with Anna, we also see Black women kind of suffering in the maternal mortality world. So in the fourth trimester, which we've coined that as the time after labor and delivery, we see Black women coming to the emergency rooms, coming to their follow-up visits, and they're complaining of dizziness, of lightheadedness, of symptoms that they should not be having after giving birth. And we found that Black women are more likely to have preeclampsia after childbirth during childbirth and eclampsia after childbirth. They're also more subject to the risk of embolisms. So Black women are three to four times more likely to die from a pregnancy-related complication than white women. We just have to remember that Black women are not medical mysteries. They're not a medical rarity. We have to believe Black women in their stories and what they come to us and tell us. Yeah, definitely, Megan. I think that's such an important and powerful story that you shared with us as well. And it's such an, an important question as well that everyone can ask ourselves. What if one person were just to care more or just do the basics that they need to and that they needed to do with Anna? You've also been a panelist and a speaker on the ethics of Black lives in healthcare. So do you think that speaking at these kinds of events puts the right issues on the table and encourages these kind of discussions? And do they actually bring about eventual change? Absolutely, Camille. You know, I think it's very important that we take our work, our mission, our purpose to academic conferences, such Mm -hmm. as the annual conference of the American Society of Bioethics and Humanities. Mm -hmm. These conferences are extremely important. So is the one that the American Public Health Association holds. But we also have to remember that a lot of people that come to these conferences are like-minded. They think like us. They believe like us. They see the same patterns we see. So while it's important to speak at these conferences, it's also important to take that same message out into your community, into your workplace and to your friend groups, and to your church groups. It's just as important to spread your message at a community level as it is at an academic base level. Oh, yeah, that's definitely true. I like that, yeah. So what would be other ways then, as you said, going to the community, other ways to bring about change and ensure justice and equity for specifically Black women in healthcare? For example, if you had unlimited time and resources to improve health and healthcare in rural America, what would you do? This is such an important question, Camille. And I think that there's a couple of things we need to understand about Black women in particular first. And one of these things is that Black women are often the matriarch of their family. Black women take on a really strong role in their family. So they're often really involved not only in their families, but also in the community to make a way for their families to guide a path for their families. And the second thing is that in the Black community, the church is a very important pillar. So these two combinations, I think it's important 
as people in healthcare, as ethics professionals, as clinicians, we find opportunities to speak to the Black church. We find their church picnics, their church activities, and we ask, can we set up a booth? Can we provide healthcare advice? Can we take your blood pressure? Can we check your oxygen? Those basic healthcare needs that we find that sometimes Black women are not getting because of lack of trust of the medical system and fear of the medical system, we find ways that we can do this in a community aspect, one that's non-threatening, a non-white coat environment, a non-hospital environment. So we can introduce ourselves and establish a relationship with Black women that we can carry on. One of the things I really advocate for is preventative care and for Black women to get a general practitioner or a primary care provider. Because we see, especially with Black women in cancer rates, such as breast cancer, there's a late diagnosis. So Black women have lower survival rates. They have a higher death rate. And we know that if we can get Black women in to see a primary care provider or a general practitioner where they can be diagnosed earlier where they're getting their scheduled mammograms. We can diagnose them sooner and we can provide a better treatment for them that will produce better outcomes. Wow, that's so amazing and just comes to show how important preventative care is and also how impactful actually building relationships and going into the communities is and how important that is. And that would definitely be a very impactful and important way to do it in the future. So let's move now to your career path. Um, How has your family and your upbringing actually helped shape your passions and influenced your career path? You know, growing up, I knew a lot about medicine. It seems like my family was always involved in healthcare in some aspect. My grandmother was a pink lady growing up, which pink ladies in the U.S., are kind of the women who work at the gift shops at hospitals. So I remember spending a lot of time at the hospital as a kid. And I would see the doctors and I would see the nurses. And I thought that was so amazing. These people were helping people. They were caring for people. And I also found medicine so interesting. So when I went to college, I started off in an international studies program, which ended up being canceled by the university. And I wanted to focus on public health and global health. And so I looked for what I could do next since that program was canceled. And by sheer chance, I ended up in a bioethics class. Hmm. And I cannot think of a more perfect major for me, a more perfect career path. It's the perfect combination of medicine and the humanities. It's really that social side of medicine, that understanding side of medicine that sometimes our primary clinicians, such as doctors and nurses, don't have time to get down to. You know, as ethicists, we get to deal with the most difficult cases. We see the most complex decisions. And we kind of help not only families and patients through these decisions, but we also have this unique perspective where we can help clinicians through their treatment plans, through their care plan to really build what the patient needs in some of their last moments. And I think that's really special to give people their final decision 
at the end of their life and to let them know that you're still the author of your story. Mm. Oh, that's so amazing that that is how everything happened to also bring you to this successful career path that you're actually on at the moment. And do you feel like the bioethics studies equipped you enough or was it a combination of the two, I guess, that the practical experience in the field, as you say, in the clinical setting as well, that really helped you to address the issues that were most important? You know, I think where I'm at now as a clinical trial manager, it's really a combination. So at Columbia, we do research ethics, we do clinical ethics, we do organizational ethics, we do end-of-life ethics, and the list goes on. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say a clinical trial manager is really a great combination of research ethics and clinical ethics. I'm making sure that the proper procedures are done for research, but I'm also making sure that there's access to patients who Mm -hmm. need these oncology treatments, who need these rare treatments to treat their disease, have this opportunity that they would not have otherwise. And that's the amazing thing about clinical trials is that you're providing an opportunity that this patient would not have elsewise. And you're extending their life or extending their quality of life into patients. That's everything. Mm. Yeah. Wow. That sounds really important as well. So what has been some of the most difficult ethical issues that you've had to dealt with as an ethics consultant as well? I would say, you know, one of the most difficult ethical issues I dealt with in Southern Illinois, where I previously worked, was mistrust of the medical system and issues stemming from that mistrust, especially at the end of life. Where I was stationed previously, it was a rural community, and a lot of the physicians, clinicians, clinical staff, people at the front desk were white Americans. And when we'd have Black Americans come in or Hispanic Americans come in, they automatically clammed up because they didn't see people who look like them. Mm -hmm. And representation is so important, especially in the medical system, because we're more comfortable around people who look like us. We're more comfortable when we see people that look like us working at the hospitals, at the clinics. And when we see people that look like us in these healthcare systems, it establishes a sense of trust. If I see someone who looks like me at a clinic, I think I can trust this system because this person trusts this system enough to work here. Mm -hmm. So I would see a lot of families who didn't trust what the doctor was saying. They didn't trust what the nurse was saying, and they ended up drawing out their loved one's illness for a long amount of time because they just couldn't establish that trust because for days they didn't see anyone who looked like them. Wow. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is that bioethical principles like equitable access, trust, and justice are really important when looking at these issues. Is that correct if I'm assuming that? Yes, we also sometimes don't talk about some of our unknown but latter known principles after the four principles. Yeah. But veracity and fidelity also. So truth telling and establishing trust 
are really important bedside ethical issues that we have to work with as clinicians, as physicians, as nurses. And it's important that we do try to establish a rapport with our patients Mm -hmm. so that they know that we want to do what's best for them. Yeah, well, that sounds really important as well. And I wonder whether doctors in training at the moment actually pay enough attention to those principles as well that you mentioned now. I'm not sure how their training looks, but I'm sure there's room for improvement. (laughs) One of the goals of ASBH is really to improve training for medical physicians so that they will be more aware of these issues and they won't conform to previously held biases. Yeah. Well, that actually brings us to your other current position, which is that you've recently been been appointed as the adjunct professor at the University of Health Sciences and Pharmacy for Ethics. And do you enjoy that position? And do you think there is a lot of potential as well to really bring in these important issues that you've raised? Absolutely. So I always say it's an honor to pour into others what's been poured into me. And I think that that's one of the things I really get to do firsthand as a professor I get to teach students about these complex ethical issues. Of course, I go through the ethical principles, the ethical theories, but the second portion of my class, I really like to do case analysis. I'd like to look at special topics such as ethics in reproductive health, ethics in genetics, and really facilitate a learning experience for my students and not just lecture them on autonomy and utilitarianism because they can pick up a book and they can read that. But how do you apply these principles, these theories to the real life scenarios you're going to see? Yeah, well, that sounds really impactful as well. Uh, How big are your classes at the moment that you teach? They vary in size, so I'm not quite sure of the class count for this semester. But I've been lucky enough to teach some RN resident students in the past. At Southern Illinois Healthcare, and we had anywhere from 25 to 30 students in a cohort. And I think that the RN resident students really appreciated that course. So now their eyes are open, their ears are open, they know what to look for, they know the keywords to look for, and they're going into situations prepared. Yeah. Because I ask about the class size because also doing case studies, it's really nice if you have a smaller group of of students and you can discuss that really intensely as well. And then lastly, I'd like to move towards the fact that we are in the COVID-19 pandemic. And I'd love to know more about what has been your experience specifically in your field at the moment as well. And you mentioned end-of-life care and that you've also had consultations with a lot of families who've been facing some really big challenges as well due to this pandemic. Absolutely. I am happy to talk about this because I think right now it's so important as we're kind of looking at our third wave of COVID in the United States. First and foremost, COVID is real. COVID is affecting families. They're affecting people everywhere, especially in rural America. We were hit hard with COVID-19. Nobody expected it. Nobody was prepared. The first wave of COVID came and 
you know, our hospitals were inundated with patients and we were doing everything we could to keep them alive, to keep them in contact with their families. But ultimately there came a point across America where we shut down elective surgeries and we shut down visitor policies in our hospitals. And at that time we had patients coming into the ER who were walking and talking and just presented with shortness of breath. And within 24 hours, they were intubated. And that in itself breaks your heart. But then to know so many of these people, they came in without any power of attorney, without any decision maker, without any contact on file, because they'd never been sick before. So the next 24 to 48 hours, we were trying to identify a next of kin, a contact, a point person to help make decisions for this patient. Later on in kind of our COVID-19 journey, we were able to get iPads set up for video chats. And for some families, that was how they said goodbye to their loved one. They didn't have a chance to come see them. They didn't have a chance to have conversations before they passed away. Their final goodbye, and we don't know how long it had been since some of these people had seen their families was through an iPad. And I think where we are right now, we're in a very similar situation. You don't want to see your loved one pass away through an iPad. So right now we have a very mixed situation where we have people in rural America who are choosing not to get vaccinated. And we're seeing an influx of COVID-19 again. And we're looking at we're going to be in that same situation where we're going to have to shut down our visitor policies. We're not going to be able to allow people to have visitors, even for routine illnesses, routine surgeries. So I think it's an important decision that we should all do our research on, that we should make if we want to be vaccinated or not, because we're watching people die again. And that's really unfortunate. Yeah. Well, no, that's very important as well. And a lot of work still to be done with end of life care, but also educating people about end of life care and how important it is to think about these things before it's too late as well. Megan, would you like to add anything more that I haven't asked you? You know, I think once again, it's just important to really remember that Advanced directives are so powerful and so important in healthcare. And I know sometimes we sit back and we say, I'm too young to have a healthcare power of attorney. I'm too young to make an advanced directive. But we never know what may happen. We never know when the next pandemic may roll around. We never know what really lies before us. So if I could advocate for anything, it's just have the conversation with your family, have the conversation with your loved ones about what you would want if something was to happen to you. And you can find it at your local state's website, several different hospitals, your primary care providers often have copies of advanced directives and you can fill them out. If you fill nothing else out, you can select your healthcare power of attorney. So you really have the person who you want making your end of life decisions or even just healthcare decisions when you're not able to making them for you. I think that that's one thing we can all take from this pandemic, from everything we've seen over the last year and a half, that 
we never know what's ahead. And it's important to have those conversations with our families and our loved ones. Yeah, no, definitely, man. Thanks for raising that as well. And for um, sharing that with our listeners as well. Yeah, so I'd just like to thank you for your time today as well and for being with us and really for just sharing your expertise and raising such important discussions that we actually should be having more about. And yeah, there's still a lot of work to be done and we look forward to everything that you're going to do as well. Thank you so much for having me, Camille, and thank you to all the listeners. I hope to speak with you all soon.